Hi and welcome to Artela, South Asia's first independent visual culture podcast with me Kamaini. Today we have with us artist Preetika Chaudhary. Her solo exhibition Unbearable Memories Unspeakable Histories is on view at Chicago's South Asia Institute till the 10th of December. This forbidding title is a reference to the South Asian partition which in 1947 led to the creation of India and Pakistan as independent nation states. Both countries celebrate 75 years of freedom from British rule this week on the 14th and 15th of August. This Artilab episode is dedicated to an event which seems at once meaningful but given the current state of affairs at least in India also devoid of much cause for joy. Now as many of you probably know there's an established well theorized canon of South Asian art that confronts the partition right from the 1940s to the present day um just listing all the artists might take up the entire episode uh Preetika's work belongs to this tradition it draws on trauma studies and feminist historical methods as well as dramatic unique materials and assemblages to memorialize the partition through a mode of art making that's called the anti memorial Let me introduce you to our guest. Kritika Chaudhary is an artist, curator and writer. Her works have been exhibited at the Weissman Museum in Minneapolis, the Queens Museum in New York, the Hunterdon Museum in New Jersey, the Islip Art Museum in Long Island, the Visual Arts Center in New Jersey, the Dover Temporary at the University of Chicago, the Brodsky Center at Rutgers University and the Cambridge Art Gallery in Massachusetts. She is the recipient of Avila's International Travel Fellowship and Edith and Sinaiko Frank Fellowship for a Woman in the Arts, a Wisconsin Arts Board grant, and a Minnesota State Art Arts Board grant. Preetika has presented her studio research projects at various conferences such as the International Arts Symposium at NYU, the Contested Terrains of Globalization at UC Irvine, and the South Asian Conference at UW Madison. So I first saw Pritika's work online uh, on social media since you know she's shown mainly in the United States and I haven't been to the United States and therefore haven't had the chance to view her uh, work in person uh, but since my last episode uh, with the artist Arshi Himadzai was also on this idea also kind of dealt with this idea of the uh, Nagoftaha or the unspoken Uh, I thought I'd begin this season as well by picking up that thread of representing that which is not in fact representable. Before we continue, I'd like to let our listeners know how to access the material accompanying our conversation. To view the images and other material being referenced and discussed in the episode, click on the link in the show notes to access the guide. You can also find the link to the guide for each episode in our Instagram captions and tweets. Hi Preetika, thank you so much for joining us on Artelap. It's so great to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Kamayani. Thank you. It is so wonderful to be on here with you. <laughs> uh, I'm really glad that we're getting a chance to uh do this interview on the occasions of the uh, Independence Days of India and Pakistan. um and i think you know because you your practice invests so much in that event 
Um, yes. I thought it'd be great to kind of have you on and talk about uh, the various ways in which you one can envision and revisit this traumatic event that also, you know, is something that we carry with us in the subcontinent. Um, so, uh, you know, you grew up in India and then, you know, formally trained as an artist in the States uh, at Wisconsin-Madison, right? Um, yeah, so you've had the experience of both sort of immersion and distance, right? Like from the South Asian community. This is true. This is this is exactly true. So tell us how you arrived at the partition as one of the focuses of your artistic practice. When did you make the first work that's part of this particular mm. project? Yes. Okay. Uh, that's that's uh, a great start. So the first work that I made about the partition uh, was in 2007, and that work was called Queering Mother India. Right. Um, and it was uh, part of this sort of amalgam, you know, mentally and emotionally of the 2002 Gujarat pogrom, the Gothra mm-hmm. riots, um, and surprisingly 9-11, you know, where in both events, um, you know, in 2001 and 2002, I saw how uh, Muslims were being targeted, you know. Um, in 2002, the Muslims in India, and in um, 2001, and then subsequently the war on terror in mm-hmm. 2003 that started. So 2001, 2002, 2003, um, the Muslims in the Middle East. Um, and I realized the the parallels between um, certain things that India does as a regional superpower and certain things that America does as, as a global superpower and how mm-hmm. how how those events sort of affect and impact uh, the Muslim minorities. This uh, right. sub, sub, this um, Muslim subaltern. So right. Okay. Right. Um, and I mean, let's talk about Queering Mother India because it was the first work mm-hmm. that you did, right? That's yeah. part of this project. Um, yes. So it features this kind of the dismembering of uh, women's bodies. Um, That's right. I'm, I'm curious yeah. to know, like, why you use the word queering? Like, what do you what I, did you mean to sort of suggest by using that? That's a great question. Thank you. So you know, at that time, I was uh, uh, deeply reading and studying Dr. Uh, Gopinath's text on queer diasporas. And how bodies um, become queered, you know, certain bodies become queered. The the heteronormative body is this idealized version, right? It is it is able bodied. It is um, it, it desires the opposite gender at all times. And in the case of females, in the case of women. Um, uh, the the ideal body also, you know, is a virgin when she gets married, is um, never raped, never violated. That never happens to the ideal female body, right? Um, so there are all these, like, unspoken, so to speak, criteria that a body must meet in order to be considered um, a legitimate um, a legitimate body, 
a valued body, so to say. And I think in her text, um, Gopinath really poetically sort of unpacks and sort of exposes all these sort of invisible, unspoken, um, just sort of internalized criteria that we all intuitively know. We know when we are outside the norm, you know. So uh, a woman that has been, um, for example, raped, knows that she's outside of that paradigm. She can never be, you know, now the, a body that is considered uh, normal, valued, um, she is always going to be damaged goods. Um, and this was something that I also saw um, in the feminist historiography by Uvashi Batalia that uh, in the name of this patriarchal ideal, which actually so few women can actually meet, this, this was then harnessed as a weapon in the partition riots and the communal riots, and I saw this, we all saw this in 2002 in the Gujarat in the That was definitely something that the Hindu right deployed. They deployed it very intentionally as a weapon. Um, the Muslim woman, of course, is no matter how much she conforms to those criteria, is all, always outside of that canon. Right, she can never be part of that canon because she, she's she's Muslim. Um, so I wanted to explore all the ways in which bodies do get queered, rather than just the one literal definition. Um, and then it occurred to me that because um, the, the Mother India construct, this patriarchal construct, <clears throat> in its perverse logic, kind of enables the use of the harnessing of rape as a weapon, um, that that should be really the, the, the thing to focus on in this project of um, uh, queered bodies due to violence, due to sexual violence. So hence the title, Queering Mother India. And then the subtitle, of course, is um, Butali, one of Butali's chapters or, or sections, History is a Woman's Body. You know? So okay. I'm, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely pointing to that. I'm alluding to that sort of querying, you know. For sure, yeah. And I think, I mean, very broadly speaking, there are, of course, many nuanced definitions of uh, mm -hmm. querying, but I think one thing they do agree on is uh, there is a consensus that it is uh, a form or mode of being that stands in opposition to heterosexuality and patriarchy. What are termed heteronormative values uh, that dominate our lives? Um, exactly. So in that exactly. sense... Yes, you're, you're, you know, thank you for your uh, explanation of why you arrived at this particular term to discuss the ravaged and savaged bodies of women. Uh, that litter, of course, not just the history of uh, uh, the, the South Asian partition, but events of violence around the world. Um, and I think it's also interesting because, I mean, people, like as Butalia has discussed and also uh, the scholar Veena Das has talked about uh, That's right. the way mm -hmm. in which uh, the 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 state constitutes itself as mm -hmm. a as a, as a masculine uh, heteropatriarchal uh, body is mm -hmm. by becoming uh, the regulator and custodian of women's yes. bodies. 
And in fact, That's like right. in Dina Das's book, she talks about, uh, uh, you know, how the abducted woman, who is the mm-hmm. ultimate figure of uh, gendered violence, uh, yes. the discourse mm-hmm. on partition, uh, it, yeah. it, it is the retrieval of their bodies uh, mm-hmm. becomes the very basis on which the state's masculinity uh, can be constructed in almost like in homology to the yes. masculinity of families, to the patriarchy mm-hmm. of families in which the That's male, right. you know, head of the family has to um, protect the bodies of the women in, yes. his, uh, in the ambit of his control. Yes. So yes. Uh, that's really interesting to also think about queering as something that is uh, fundamentally in opposition to this construction. And of course, as we know, in all uh, fundamentalist and right wing rhetoric, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the bodies of trans persons, the bodies of uh, yeah. you know, uh, non heterosexual people are, uh, as you said, devalued entirely. And so this project was it? Did you begin it in at university during your uh, yes. studies? Yes. So I was um, doing my MFA at UW Madison, and I happened to um, attend, luckily, uh, a a graduate seminar on cultural memory. And uh, it, you know, in the readings of that, and of course, you know, being in the West, cultural memory is very much focused on Holocaust and, uh, you know, a few other events. Mm -hmm. But, um, and at that time, there was some uh, conversation about 9-11, but, you know, 9-11 was still recent, you know, in 2006 right. when I attended. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the discourse was emerging definitely uh, around, you know, the, the cultural memory of 9-11 too. So uh, in the, so this was my sort of odd location in a, in a graduate school in, in U.S., right, that I felt that South Asia or my cultural context was not Obviously not represented, you know, and mm-hmm. especially back then, um, I was I was like the only, you know, South Asian in my graduate program, and it was it's a big graduate program, you know, at any one given point there are like at least hundred students there, because um, it's a three year program, it's um, it's just it's intense, you know, and um, it's a it's a huge you know top ten university, it's just one of those things. So, uh, so here I was, you know, uh, before making Querying Mother India work, I had actually made like a life-size uh, clay sculpture wearing a sari, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the sari folds also I had like sculpted in clay. Um, then I had painted it and, you know, all of this stuff. And the, the woman in, in in the sculpture was bald. She had mm-hmm. a, a black eye and she was sticking her tongue out like, like that, you know. Um, and that was like so when we were invited to as first first uh, semester grad students we were invited to put one work in as an introduction to the program that was the work i had introduced myself in and and my professors were like you know they just didn't know what to do with me because they're like well, maybe you should um, you know look into making more universal works and uh, mm-hmm. in my mind i was thinking yes that you know i'm not doing this <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, as it is, there is minimal representation, and then I should remove the representation that I can bring. No, I'm not doing that. So I, of course, um, stubbornly continued uh, to make uh, uh, works in, in my South Asian cultural-specific context. And then post the um, the grad seminar, I it sort of uh, gave me 
I guess, a vocabulary to to assert that even more, you know. And, mm-hmm. and in, that, in that seminar, I've started to find my people, my allies, you know, uh, which is, as a minority is very important. And also, in a way, it made me really um, sort of empathize with what the Muslim minority in India probably goes through, or even in the U.S., because as a minority, oh. you have... Um, you have significantly lesser privileges socially and in the public sphere. The cultural memory discourse at that time was also kind of emerging in India. It was not like an established um, discourse yet. You know, this still wasn't, there definitely wasn't a memorial to the partition in India for the longest time. This has only started happening in the last five years, you know, with the partition museum being um, the first one being the partition Mm. museum. In my mind, that's the first actual memorial to the partition. Mm. Um, So, uh, so yes, it did start in university. That's that's to to give you a long answer. (laughs) No, I mean, I think it's interesting that you, you know, also talk about your experience of being somewhat racialized minority. In, uh-huh. in the states, uh, and the idea that universal, of course, is equated with white uh, exactly. narratives, um, and then in response to this erasure or marginalization, there's often an uh, essentializing of diaspora identity that serves, you know, their dominant groups. You know, I mean, even within the states, for example, when people think of Indian culture, they actually are thinking of. Uh, upper caste Hindu culture, they're not actually, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the whole idea of being an Indian Muslim uh, or a Dalit Indian mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. is um, not something that is something that troubles this construction of yes. who is a, of who is a, an Indian, even in the States, even in the mm-hmm. diaspora. Yes. Um, so I think it's really interesting that, you know, you, that these experiences kind of also um, in some way influence the, your own approach to your approach to the art that you were making. Um, and to sort of go back to even this idea, you know, what you mentioned earlier about, um, the, you know, reading about the Holocaust or the Shoah, mm-hmm. as you know, as it's also called, um, yes. how that kind of, uh, that engaging with that discourse and the, you know, the visual art or the representations that were coming out of that, uh, those conversations, how that uh, influenced your own practice. Uh, even the very idea of the anti-memorial or the counter-monument, for example, mm-hmm. that you invoke mm-hmm. in you know, right, discussing your work. Now, these mm-hmm. are ideas that the scholar James E. Young uses in relation mm-hmm. to German artists' attempts to come to terms with the Holocaust mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s. Now, one of his That's claims right. is that due to the German, the fact that the German state was the violator rather than the victor, and the mm-hmm. way that the Nazis used monumentality as a way to sort of legitimize their ideology, these generations yes. that came after were turning to mediums and modes of commemoration that were the opposite of those used in traditional monument building, you know, right. of nation mm-hmm. states looking to glorify themselves. So, yes. I'm, yes. so I'm wondering like how that particular formulation, uh, how you sort of adopted that, worked through it, and then kind of, you know, um, how that probably informed your own choice of materials and techniques. Yes, for sure. So um, the people, the group, the demographic that um, causes the most grief for Muslim minorities, um, that's the demographic I belong to. You know, so what you're talking about in Germany, where people of the post-Shoah generations, the artists from post-Shoah generation, 
um, are making these anti-memorials as a way to express maybe remorse or um, maybe to, you know, very deliberately and intentionally counter what the their for um, the generation before them had done. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel a certain level of this collective guilt uh, of, mm-hmm. you know, upper caste Hindus. Um, what our demographic has sort of perpetrated mm-hmm. on, on the Muslims in India. And so therefore, um, I think that's one of the reasons perhaps why I gravitate towards the form of the anti-memorial or the counter-monument because mm-hmm. uh, monumentality is not going to be able to express what I wish to express. I mean, I wish to express remorse. I wish to make gestures of repair. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I deeply feel like, you know, that the the Muslim population in India has been very deeply wronged, you know, and I, I do very much, uh, I don't know, try to make amends through yeah. the artwork. Um, which feels really not enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes, it's really it's definitely a complicated process. It's a complicated yeah. uh, emotion. But I, I, the true, the, the, I feel like the amends that would actually make a difference need to be done politically, mm. you know, um, in the civil sphere, in the, in the public sphere, in the, the governmental sphere. Um, but because I am not in that in those spheres, um, I try to do it through my artwork because I feel like that's my, that's the instrument I can wield. Perhaps that, um, maybe that's what I would need to make peace with that. That's what I can do, you know, is acknowledgement, is, is um, that I hear you, I see you, I, I understand what, what, what you've been put through. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you're right. It's not, not only a complicated emotion to work through, but also, um, I mean, one wonders, you know, if if one isn't then, I mean, I I think about this all the time with all of the work that any of us do with the best intentions, that if Mm -hmm. we aren't merely like becoming further implicated in, you know, Mm -hmm. in a a politics of guilt, because it's also a form of uh, sort of absolving, absolving oneself right mm. from one's proximity mm. to these acts uh, mm. and in fact you know like this is true around the world right there's a certain yeah. uh, way in mm-hmm. which one can this can veer into an aestheticization of as you said uh like material asymmetries and harms right yeah the fact yeah. that there are actually at least in this country currently you know muslims being massacred or threatened with genocide you yeah. do wonder like how that suffering can be in any way, you know, responded to adequately. Mm-hmm. Because that's mm-hmm. also one of the challenges of representing historical trauma, to go back to the partition, which is a kind of epochal moment of, yes. uh, you know, extreme mm-hmm. violence. In yes. that, do, how, do you, how do you represent something like that? And there is an entire body of lit scholarship and literature just tackling this question. Is it even possible to mm. uh, depict, uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, violence of this scale and nature? Um, and yeah. so I also wondered, like, you know, to take a cue from what you're talking about, just in terms of material, 
yes yeah strategy mm-hmm. artistic mm-hmm. strategy you know yes. like i'm thinking of a work like remembering the crooked line right mm-hmm. where you've used you know blouses cholis you've used kites yes. you've used yeah. board games traditional south asian board games uh, yes. as forms through which you communicate mm-hmm. the concept of territorial division in any context yes. so yes. what made you select these objects and you know what is the value in linking these mm-hmm. differing partitions to each other yes great question thank you so materially um obviously because i was i'm working in the in the ambit of an anti memorial or a counter monument i choose fragile materials i ch- choose materials that are inherently um precarious um so i you know um in remembering the crooked line um i've used you know uh, like khadar cotton in the silk um and uh, you know i have stitched um map lines on them and i have also burned map lines on them um and of course you know with the the chess and the precisi piece you know i print it on them and then i draw on them and stitch on them and do embroidery to highlight um the line of division mm-hmm. um so and of course you know the the intertextual reference here of course is the crooked line teri lakeer by sanjukdai yeah uh in which of course you know there is the muslim woman protagonist right in india coming of age in the 1940s eventually gets um uh, romantically involved with an irishman who she yes. initially mistakes for being a, a white british uh man yeah. uh it's just a, sort of this like brilliant juxtaposition by chitai in the 1950s you know in in creating this tale um where the the muslim woman could never be um the mother india right she's outside yeah. of the of the canon but that's the heroine of this huge historical allegorical novel in which right. she's also making the connections with um another british colony which is ireland um so that's kind of where it uh, came to me that you know there britain had a lot of different colonies and and what did what happened with the other colonies when the brit right. when the exited um so that's how i started researching um you know the the irish partition and then of course the, that happened in 1919 right mm-hmm. so that was the, when the irish declared their independence it was also very violent very bloody as you know you know um there there are so many parallels to their narrative and our narrative and then there was i find i come to find there was this indo irish league you know they were providing and there are also these socialist linkages uh, uh, yes. among you know between uh, communists in india and communists in ireland both yes. in, in fighting an anti colonial struggle yes and then of course palestine so pa- uh, palestine was a british mandate uh, which mm-hmm. is basically another word for being a colony um that was partitioned 2 months after our partition so right. november of 1947 and you would think that from what they saw and then you saw what happened in india right yeah um, two months after that you are in palestine and you are exiting from palestine and you partition them right. and and both parties rejected and you you leave 
you know, knowing that this is going to be another, you know, decades long conflict, understanding these, um, you know, just the sort of, if you just look at these three three partitions, right, Ireland and Palestine, um, you kind of get a sense of the politics and the geopolitics involved. And then, of course, I come to find that there is all these other instances in, in history, just in the 20th century. So there is the colonial partitions and there is the Cold War partitions, right? So um, you've got in the, the Cold War partitions, you've got Germany and Korea and Vietnam. And then in the colonial partitions, you've got India, Ireland and Palestine. And then um, sort of these like neo-imperial partitions of like Cyprus and Bosnia. And just, mm-hmm. it, so I, when you start to look at, so there's that one lens where you're only looking at the one history and the one one partition. But then when you make it, when you look at it as one of many, when you when you look at yeah. it as a multi from a multi-lens, right? Right. Then you find other threads. You find other threads yes. of um geopolitics that may elude one if one were only looking at it from you know the point of view of this is one partition that I am looking at. So so Chuktai's book kind of led me into that. And mm-hmm. uh, so therefore I titled it after her book, Remembering the Crooked Line. But um, to come back to your original question of materials, um, the materials are very carefully sort of picked. You know, so I'm using pig guts on the kites. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm using surgical sutures, you know, as a gesture of, literally as a gesture of repair on um, the cholis and the kites. Uh, I'm sort of burning the partition line. And so I'm trying to materially manifest this idea of a rupture. And then right. my attempts, maybe futile attempts at repair. So in all this, I'm thinking of skin, like, you know, the, the materiality of skin, of human skin, of human bodies. So even though it's this large history, like this macro history of a nation or many nations, um, I'm still trying to locate it in the in the bodies of and the, in the experience of individuals. So individual bodies, how how these events may leave scars on on individual bodies, but then also um, thinking of maps as sort of the skin of the nation, and then these the skin gets ruptured where this line of division yeah. is then then made. Um, so I'm burning it in, I'm, I'm ripping it, uh, you know, so there's this sort of violence to the material itself, but right. then I'm also going back and making a gesture of repair by stitching it or, you know, using surgical sutures or whatnot. So big cuts is sort of like an interesting material to work with because when yeah. it's wet, um, a, it's very smelly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as a vegetarian, that's, that's, it makes me crazy, but you know, um, yeah. Uh, it's uh, uh, so that, but but when so then I, then I also color it using turmeric, you know, and all of this stuff. So I use tea and turmeric with all in all these materials, which are sort of the original items of colonial trade, so to speak. Mm. You know, uh, spices and tea and uh, cotton and silk. You know, these type of like the, this is what initially colonial trade was sort of built on, uh, even with the East India Company. Um, uh, but then I use these other materials to create the skin-like texture and use wax and, you know, I use lighting to make the the uh, 
objects translucent, sort of. Yeah. So, so to create the sort of otherworldly, ghostly feeling of bodies that are present but absent, mm-hmm. you know, right? So you only right. see the cholis and the kurtis, you only see the form, but they are hollow, the rest of the body is not present. Um, yeah. the, the kites just sort of hang there, but I sort of usually install them in a line. So they're installed from the ceiling, but they are they're creating a line, uh, mm-hmm. much like a Radcliffe line, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the, of course, with the, uh, the, the chess and the prachisi, um, you know, I'm using silk and which, you know, and I, I actually set up a board. I set up a chess board. I set mm-hmm. up a chessy board. Um, and I've had people actually sit down and play a game of chess and play, play right. a game of using my, my 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 weird setup in a way because it's um, uh, the the Parchisi panels have you know maps of all these different countries that have been partitioned. So you know, and that's a big history to kind of yeah. um, express through materials. So I so that's what brings me to these kind of materials of. Yeah. Um, these sort of uh, precarious, fragile, frail materials that can convey mm-hmm. the, the reality of skin. Right. No, I was also curious because I, I wondered, like, what, um, you know, which uh, traditions in art, you know, you, you might be placing your work in a particular mm. lineage of uh, art mm. practice. Uh, mm. I mean, using materials like this, you know, there, there's a whole uh, legacy of post-minimalist especially women artists doing this, yeah. using material in this yeah. particular way, and yes. unorthodox kinds of materials, and um, yes. that that they manipulate in very expressive and provocative ways. So yes. I was wondering if that's also something that you were kind of, maybe subconsciously or consciously oh, connecting oh, your own practice to. So the post-minimalist um, sculpt- memory sculptures, that that's mm. the lineage that I would put my work in. Um and funnily, of course, that has also been theorized um, a lot by Andreas Hoysen, you know, right. in, in present right. past. Um, and of course, you know, he talks about Doris Salcedo's works, which, I mean, I love her works. I love uh, Doris Salcedo's right. use of material, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there is the, the Arthur Biliaro's uh, work where... Right, I was going to ask you know, about that, yeah. yeah. In, especially so, in relation to Silent Waters, where you're using feet. So yes, wanted to- yes. Indeed, yeah. and and of course, you know the way she uses uh, she uses big guts and surgical sutures too, and, yeah. and you know she's sort of almost embedding these uh, found shoes into the wall and then sealing them with mm. big guts and, and surgical sutures, and uh, uh, and you know I mean it's it's another Holocaust motif, you know where you know you know you remember the photos of the piles of shoes of, you know, the, the people that were um, gassed in the chambers and, you yeah. know, the piles of hair and the piles of coats and, you know, the, mm-hmm. just this, they were reduced to this in anime right. things that uh, the, the shoes were saved, the, the coats were saved, you know, right. even, but the, the people were, people were gassed, you know? Yeah. Um, um and of course, uh, Doris Salcedo's context of Colombia, where you know, again, state-sponsored violence, where um, opponents of uh, the government, you know, these young people were just disappeared in mass, uh, 
um, quite possibly tortured and then killed and then maybe maybe or maybe not later found in mass graves, you know. So uh, I think the this lineage of uh, post-minimalist memory sculptures is definitely where I would place my work into very, very squarely in that in that tradition or in that practice really of um, you know creating artworks of resistance you know right. artworks that memorialize that acknowledge but then also resist um, uh, you know sort of hegemonic narratives of uh, events um, so so in India the narrative of course is the independence of India you know the hero narrative of India and India's freedom fighters, we fought bravely and we got dependence from the British. And in this narrative, the nation of India always emerges as the hero, right? Um, And in this narrative, there is really no place to even acknowledge the violence of partition other other than this very narrow narrative of victim, you know, where hmm. India was, Hindus were the victims of uh, partition violence and um, Muslims were the aggressors. And, uh, it, you know, so that's that's the only way that it can be acknowledged. If one almost has to kind of harness these kind of abject materials, you know, hair yeah. and um, to to highlight or to express this other narrative the narrative that is that's outside of those nationalist hero narratives right right and you know as we've been discussing through this conversation at various points by uh, citing scholars uh, who've done this uh, like the feminist historiography that's come to bear on partition studies in the past 20 or 30 years uh, is sort of uh, premised on uh, countering this hegemonic narrative uh, so just to sort of go back to uh, Salcido's work, um, and, you know, I, I, I was just looking at some of her um, uh, pieces and also comparing them to, you know, your work. And there's this kind of interesting dialectic between visible and invisible that, you know, her work definitely is suggestive of. And mm-hmm. uh, I see that, for example, in your work, in, uh, in the case of... Uh, uh, very clearly, I mean, in the case of remembering the crooked line, where the blouses really made me think of, you know, the this, the bodies of women that are both there and not there. So this idea of absence that you mentioned, um, you know, also because we know how the bodies of women, their surfaces, their skins were mm-hmm. violated, uh, inscribed by mm-hmm. uh, yes. know, the men of, of the other communities. Mm-hmm. So this idea of the visible and the invisible is really intriguing and, and it mm-hmm. sort of comes through in your choice of materials as well. And I was also thinking in the case of uh, Salcido's work, like the, this, this, the abducted figure is at the mm-hmm. heart of her practice as well, right? I mean, yes. it's obviously it's a completely different socio-historical and political um, setting in which, you know, she's working or to mm-hmm. which she's responding. But this idea of the missing person, Right, mm-hmm. whether it's mm-hmm. a man or a woman or a or anyone, a citizen that's yes. missing, basically, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. Also, how you deal with absence and negation, uh, mm-hmm. and then and what what happens is that then in that in in a sort of in an aesthetic uh, kind of response to something like this, to events like this, it's almost like the trace or the index becomes the mode. Mm-hmm. 
through which yes. to represent, right? Because you can't yes. represent frontally. You can exactly. never yeah. know the exactly. entirety or totality of the trauma. So it's through in indexes, through objects, through traces. And they almost yes. like they almost rhyme with the scar and the wound, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. It's um, it, that's definitely uh, what is going on with with the objects I try to make is to uh, you know is to create that that trace or the, to create that index of the, the 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 trauma that that has been perpetrated on individual bodies, and you know the I feel that Salcedo's. Um, works like especially the like the unland you know and the Arthur Biliaros yeah. uh, actually to me really resonate with Kashmir's uh, current situation you know where um, young young protesters are being you know just taken away no due process really and then you know families are finding them in mass graves years later or not Nothing, or just nothing, unmarked, unmarked mass graves where you can't even tell. Um, I mean, talk about universal, right? The, yeah. this is, so you know, but the the idea of you know traces and memory traces and indexes of um, uh, creating indexes of events that have historical events that have passed, but now they still impact the present. Um, I mean, I, th this this is something that. Um, is there in almost all of the works in in uh, at least in the partition anti memorial project because so for example the you know memory leaks you know the that work with the copper dharapatras um, yeah. and havan havan kuns the in that you know i invite um, viewers to actually pour water through the dharapatras uh, to activate the leakage of the memory that is represented on each dharapatra into the havankun. So, it's, you know, I'm literally sort of uh, inviting the viewer to activate that leak, to uh, activate that index, indexicality of that event. So each dharapatra is sort of etched with um, the name and year of a significant communal riot, you know. Right. And by significant, um, I mean, I mean something that... Um, uh, obviously, you know, caused a high number of deaths, but also culturally kind of was uh, sort of a landmark landmark event, you know, that, you know, probably affected the, the Muslim minority in, in India in a significant way. Like it's another sort of, you know, huge reminder of this is how you yeah. will be treated in this country, you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, in terms of like, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up memory leaks because it's it's a work that kind of underscores the way in which the partition recurs, the memory of the mm -hmm. partition haunts yes. know, India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. But I mean, we, I can speak to India definitely. Yes. Um, that the way in which the the narratives and the stories and the memories of the partition, post memories, as Marianne Hirsch talks about, of the partition, yes. are kind of constantly reactivated at any moment of crisis, um, yes. is quite telling. And it will mm -hmm. never entirely leave any experience of, you know, the body politic that we can have, it seems, as citizens yeah. who belong yeah. to different uh, religions because our entire identity was constituted along religious lines. I mean, even mm -hmm. though, for example, India, from the very beginning, 
uh, characterized itself as a as a secular country as a republic um, mm-hmm. we know that socially that's not quite how it played out right yes so uh, and because it didn't play out that way socially the state which is always going to be sort of uh, you know uh, emboldening the majority um mm-hmm. it 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 sort of it's something that has had repercussions for us even in terms of our civic life and our uh, our political uh, our, you know our legislative life so uh, i think what's interesting about memory leaks though it made me think also like you know you, you've been using in this particular work like you use objects almost like as metonyms right as stand-ins mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. communities yeah. and so there's always this danger that you know this might become an oversimplification you know mm-hmm. and so as yeah. an artist that's something uh i guess that you have to guard against or think about mm-hmm. right yeah. uh, how do you how do you sort of work through this problem yeah um yeah so the that's why i i kind of work in the in the anti memorial uh space because given that objects i the materials i use and given the objects i make um it would be very hard for a state actor to appropriate them and and say oh you know this this is why we do this this is why we are a victim this is why muslims are bad this is why pakistan is bad because i make it quite clear in the work itself that um that my politics are not not the state politics that's not you know yeah. um So my works kind of just materially kind of belie that like right. materially just deny uh, po- the possibility of yeah. of state appropriation and and that's very much intentional this very much intentional but i guess i meant uh, this in a more uh, abstract sense that you know there's a danger with sort of associating um Well, not danger but i mean i think it's a more it's more complicated which is why i want to understand your process that like mm. for example dhara patras and havans mm-hmm. uh, you oh, know yeah. are associated with hindu uh, religious oh, yes. practices mm-hmm. and yeah. and you know urdu books aren't really i mean now they become a target for hindu government yeah. but urdu yeah. for example is a it was the language mm-hmm. of north indian uh, yes educated north indians for the longest yes. time yeah. um, so that i think is to me that that's this is worry of sort of identitarian um, hmm. essentialism or sort of an ease with which we can yeah uh, you know we might kind of reduce complex uh, events or dynamics and i think that's something one struggles with right in art making because yeah. you're fundamentally so, working with objects yeah so i i would tell you a story about this So you know I made the memory leaks um project in the Sanskriti Foundation it was a, right. uh, as part of a residency and so you know every other day I was going to old delhi to find the the dharpatras and the havan films because you can't really find them in a mall for example right so um uh I when I got there I made several trips and then I found some dealers that you know could um from where i could source the the tharapatras and havankuns and then um but i needed more i needed in more sizes than what they had in in the shop at that time so they said okay we'll we'll deliver it to you where are you so um i gave them the address of sarkari foundation i said you know it's this organization you come and ask for me and you know they'll either send you, you to where i am or i'll come to the reception and i'll pick them up so at this time i'm like i'm into it you know i have made i've done the etchings on several of the tharapatras already of the communal rights and um the 
the office brought them to my studio, uh, my okay. live work studio to, to deliver the Dharapatras. So these two gentlemen walk in and they, uh, initially they are, um, I could see that they are very, you know, um, sort of delighted to be in this Hindu organization, you know, Sanskriti Foundation and all this. And then they came in to the studio and they were, they were very curious about what I'm doing with them. Like, why do I need so many Dharapatras, right? So, mm-hmm. and they picked up a couple and they looked at it and then they sort of realized what I'm doing, you know. Damn, um, it's not a yagya. <laughs> Yeah, and um, this so if they started um, asking me questions like um, so why are you making this work you know Mm -hmm. and they quickly became very upset they're like you're making India look bad you're making Mm -hmm. Indians look bad like I mean it became like a fight but it also to me it brought home the point that you know if I were to just put a dharapatra in a havan kund Yes, that is open to being, you know, co-opted. But because I have etched the body of each Dharapatra mm-hmm. with those holy marks and very prominently with the year and name of the communal mm-hmm. bride, um, and of course I'm using the Dharapatra very intentionally. The And my representation is tame from that perspective because it's I'm putting Urdu books, like decidedly Urdu books, meaning Urdu meaning written in the Arabic script, right? Mm-hmm. They are partially burned. They are present in the Havankund. So the water that that is that I'm asking the viewers to pour through the the the, the Dharapatra is dripping drip, drop yeah. by drop into the Havankund. So in a way to sort of symbolically to put out yeah. arson. Um, so I I think even though I'm used and I very intentionally use these religious objects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my um, you know. My dream is for some of these um, RSS people to actually visit this installation and pour the water as a gesture of remorse for what they have. You mean a reformed RSS? Yeah, Yeah, reformed RSS. Yeah, because that's the only way. I understand, like, you know, there's a kind of therapeutic aspect to some of this, which is Mm -hmm. interesting. Like, because you're you're inviting participation. Yes. And so it takes on a different kind of charge. Because you're you're sort of involving the bodies of your, you know, the spectators and visitors. Yes. Doing it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm also curious, like, I mean, I actually, on a final note, did want to, you know, discuss with you about the Partition Museum and uh, even the 1947 Partition Archive. Um, You know, scholars like, for example, Ravinder Kaur, uh, who's a scholar Mm -hmm. of the Partition uh, she wrote a great uh, piece, I think, in The Wire about this. Her, her critique was basically that there's a way in which there's this depoliticization of mm-hmm. the partition that happens with these mm-hmm. kinds of uh, organizations or initiatives, where yeah. the foregrounding of individual narratives is at the cost of the of structural critique of the state. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you can very easily kind of, you know, efface the complicity yeah. of societies and yes. communities in yeah. raping and butchering each other. Mm. By using something like the, you know, the formulation of the idea of the human subject. Yeah. That's what she talks about. Like she, I'm just going to quote her. She has this line where she says, the human subject in this project is a free-floating agent disconnected from the realm of politics. Rather than kind of, you know, these projects inviting examination into how these events happened and the political and social kind of uh, infrastructure and uh, sort of um, machinery of legitimization that mm-hmm. allowed 
these large scale acts of violence to happen in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. And like somebody else, I think uh, I'm forgetting who I, he. There was this piece where he talked about uh, you know fridge magnets carrying the Partition Museum logo at the Jaipur Literary Festival. Hang on, let me look it up. I think the gentleman is Tarun K. Saint. Um, he's an independent scholar. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I just mm-hmm. thought it was really funny because he he kind of brought it up in the context of like uh, you know the people sort of. Uh, abusing certain concepts like in this case Pierre and Ora's concept of the Leo de Memoir. So mm. you basically make it a fridge magnet. That's not a Leo de Memoir, I'm sorry. No. So no. yeah, so like the way in which these in capitalism and a certain kind of easy liberal mm. humanism can just mm. you know do away with the messy business of uh, wash his hands of the messy business of our own mm. uh, dysfunctions as societies. You bring up an important point about the 1947 partition archive too. I mean, I, I, I really kind of appreciate, um, you know, Gunjan Bhalla's um, uh, initiative. It is, Gunita, it is, yeah. Gunit Bhalla's. I'm sorry, Gunit Bhalla's. Um, yeah, um, initiative. I'm so sorry, Gunita Bhalla's initiative yeah. of um, collecting uh, individual testimonies. But I. I mean, as important as that is, I mean, it is important to collect those testimonies, but I do see how it kind of defangs the overall critique of, you know, of the communalism that has emerged um, out of the partition rights. I mean, you know, and and she has been sort of good about sort of training people on both sides of the border. You know, as citizen historians and whatnot, citizen archivists, um, and all of that is appreciable. But I think it does open itself up to this situation where it becomes like a feel good thing. You know where people yeah, can walk exactly. away. Sort of removing removing the the object of inquiry from the uh, field, both discursive and material, in hmm. which it operates. Actually, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and yeah. and and sort of. I mean, it does transform it into this arena of like easy liberal humanism, yeah. where you know. So because we have acknowledged and recorded the testimony, and we have um, you know honored it. You know, in in a certain way, um, so so we're good. You know, yeah, like, yeah, um, exactly. That self absolution thing, yeah. self absolution thing, yeah. yeah. Which I think is not, um, it's not because it's still continuing. It's, it's. It, I mean, it would be another thing if we were in in in, in a a moment in history in South mm-hmm. Asia where communal tensions had been resolved. You know, yeah. that a communal conflict had been resolved. It was no longer happening. I, I think then it would be kind of okay, you know, because then it's just a matter of like emotionally and psychologically getting yeah. past uh, the the historical trauma. But this is a very present thing. And that's the yeah. whole point of my Partition Anti-Memorial Project. It's a very present thing. This is yeah. not over. This is not, not just a history lesson. Yeah. We live in it. So it's not over. And so, yes, I mean just taking testimony from partition survivors then kind of minimizes what's at, how it's actually still haunting and present in contemporary politics. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
That's it. Uh, also, I wanted to ask you: Do you want to tell our uh, listeners about your show? <laughs> I guess yes. So um, on that I note, am, on that yeah. note, uh, so um, so for the first time, I'm getting to show all these like ten projects from the Partition Anti Memorial Project in one place, in one venue, and uh, that is the South Asia Institute in Chicago. And uh, it opens on August 6th and uh, runs till December 10th. Um, wow. Yeah. That's a good few months, I hope. It's a good, it's a good couple yeah, of months, right? Can like, kind of, yeah, find the time yeah, to come and visit and see the yeah, work. Yeah. But, um, it, you know, on the on the 75th anniversary of the partition, um, I think this is, this is significant to kind of be able to stage um, a large-scale anti-memorial to, to the partition. And again... Not to not to take away, uh, you know the the troubling aspects of it because it's again it's a present trauma. It's not a past yeah. trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time, Hitika. Yes. Really appreciate you coming on to Artilap and talking to oh. us about your work. Oh, thank you for having me. It was it was such a wonderful and generative conversation. Thank you. I feel the I'm, same I'm way. <laughs> I'm so honored. I'm so honored to be an art lab. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning into Artalap with Preetika Chaudhary as we discussed her series on the partition in the context of counter memory, internationalist solidarity, and feminist history writing. You can check out her show, Unbearable Memories, Unspeakable Histories, at Chicago South Asia Institute till the 10th of December. You can get updates and information about the show on their Instagram page at South Asia Institute. We want to keep bringing you unique content, so please consider supporting us on Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee. We have exclusive features for subscribers at different tiers. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and share the episode over social media. For more information and updates, you can follow us on Instagram at art.alap and on Twitter at at R-T-A-L-A-A-P.